The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Thrive Fantasy is a new DFS app for prop bets. And if you know anything about me, you know that I love a good prop bet. They have streamlined the drafting process and eliminated the need to do hours of research by using only top-tier athletes. Instead of the traditional salary cap DFS format, you just build your lineup around a list of prop bets. For each contest, you choose 10 prop bets, plus two extra picks that protect you from any late scratches or postponed games. Each unique prop has an over and an under point value assigned to it, and you will be rewarded that point value if the prop grades out as correct. The person with the most points wins. Peer-to-peer betting, prop betting, can't beat it. TakeCast listeners can get a free $10 credit with their first deposit of $10 or more when they enter the promo code MATIC on sign-up. It's available in the App Store or at ThriveFantasy.com. That's promo code MATIC for a $10 credit. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the TakeCast. I am Davis Maddock. You can find me on Twitter, at Davis Maddock. In this episode of the show, I am joined by Jeff Collins from his new website. And if you want to know what that website is, listen to the interview. Uh, It's the first thing that we talk about. Of course, this uh, pretty long and very interesting episode covers a lot of other topics, including uh, Jeff's time as a Golden State Warriors fan through the years, a lot of his thoughts on DFS, a lot of his DFS process in terms of number crunching, game theory, ownership projections, uh, and a lot of other good information about daily fantasy that you guys will uh, you guys will definitely want to know. And we also talk about Jeff's time at Guru Elite and uh, Roto Grinders and just sort of his journey through Throughout the DFS industry, I, I found Jeff to be a very thoughtful and well-spoken guest on the show. I think this is really one of the best episodes that we've done since we started doing the TakeCast, and I think that you guys will appreciate it. Of course, if you like the show, you can always leave a rating and review on iTunes. You can always support the show by subscribing on Patreon to get extra bonus episodes of the show for only $5 a month. We are, of course, presented by DailyRoto.com and RotoExperts.com. You can save 10% on Daily Roto using the promo code Rory and 10% on RotoExperts.com in the NFL 365 package using the promo code MATIC. And we also have uh, a new sponsor, Thrive Fantasy, which you guys heard on, uh, on the way in. And now we're going to go ahead and get to the interview. All right, everyone, would like to welcome in Jeff Collins to the podcast on the eve, on the morning of uh, a big announcement, something that a lot of you have been waiting for. And Jeff is doing me a great favor. Uh, We are actually going to announce his new daily fantasy venture on this podcast and, of course, get into a lot of other stuff. But Jeff, first, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. I've listened to your show a couple times, and I will say – when you sent me over kind of some topics that you wanted to talk about, I'm like, man, this guy is on top of everything. I've got a lot of respect for what you're doing right now. 
Appreciate it. I can't, I can't take all the credit for myself. Uh, Colin Drew helped me with the outline. Now it's actually, this is actually like something kind of nice about going corporate is uh, now when I do a show and there's a guest that other people care about and it's not just for me, people, you know, they're willing to lend a hand. They're willing to get their, their hands dirty to get a production credit. <laughs> I like it, man. Take all the help you can get. All right. So Jeff, why don't, uh, why don't we tell the people about, uh, about the new venture? So it's funny because a lot of people on Twitter, there are a few people speculating that I'm just trolling people and I'm not really going to announce a site. I'm just kind of screwing with everyone. And uh, April 1st, I'm going to be like, oh, just kidding. Um, just playing DFS still. <laughs> but uh, been working on a site for a while now to align with just my vision of, of content. And um, we're launching and it's going to be called Number Ball. We are going to focus a lot on teaching DFS, trying to get people uh, to really increase their skill level in DFS rather than promising huge winning nights. Like I think uh, that's the problem with the content industry in general right now is that people think they're guaranteed to make money if they join a certain content site. And it's like, yeah, that should come if you're getting better at, at, at different things in DFS, but let's focus on getting better at those things. And, and that's what we're going to do there. Well, I mean, just having access to really good projections in and of itself is no guarantee to win money or even even having access to some of the best DFS players in the world and their thoughts like that. That's just not going to lock in profit. You have to learn how to be able to you got to teach a man to fish, Jeff. Yeah, that's what everyone says. Right. And it's 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 so true. You have to know everything from what your expectations should be to what how, like what sort of things you should do to accomplish your goals because everyone's got different goals and you need to tailor your attack in DFS to those goals. I, I think that there are a lot of things that when DFS was just getting started in the contest industry, people would just accepted things as well. This is bankroll management. This is what it should be. And then like everyone kind of just copied that and then like, all right, well, yeah, 80, 20, 10, like that's what we should do. That's how, what contest I should play. But like there's some people at the end of the year where they, if they grind out 10% profit, like they're mad. Like they'd never had a sweat at a big GPP or life changing money. And they're like, ah, like that didn't really do it for me. So I think making sure you're, you're, you know what your goals are and how to accomplish them is important too. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that actually is a very good point. And something that's sort of interesting over the last two years in the daily fantasy industry is I think like, uh, you know, maybe like five years ago, grinding out like a good 10% profit. That was like kind of the goal of what like daily fantasy players wanted. Everyone played cash games. Every podcast you listened to was talking about cash game lineup construction. And a couple things happened. First is, you know, the million dollar prize pools really changed. Um, lineup optimizers changed, made it easier to make 150 or 20 teams or whatever. And um, also, like the, the thought that goes into doing cash game teams kind of just became second nature to a lot of the people that play DFS. Like even, even in like $2 games, like you can, you can go click on a $2 NBA game and there'll be bad teams and there'll be people who don't know what they're doing. But like, you know, if, if Giannis is out Middleton or whatever, he's going to be 90% owned. And that just was not really the case five years ago. Like people are just so much sharper even if they're not like a sharp DFS player, like the 80th percentile DFS player is 20 times better than they were five years ago. Baseball and basketball are the best examples of that. And a lot of that having to do with 
just how common it became for everyone to start looking at lineups and like lineup news, right? At, uh, up until lock, that was the big edge when I first started playing DFS is not everyone was paying attention to the news and adjusting for the backup players going to the starting lineup and, and stuff like that. Like, like you're talking about, like now it's just automatic and baseball too. It's like people weren't paying attention to lineups being released. It was just, Oh, well this guy's probably going to play now. It's yeah. we get updates from all these different apps that tell you the exact lineup that that didn't used to be the case. Yeah. So we are going to talk more of a lot of DFS stuff, a lot of industry stuff, but actually, honestly, the thing that I was most interested in talking to you about was something that I've found fascinating for a long time is longtime Golden State Warriors fans, fans who were there when the team was bad uh, for Steph Curry getting benched for AC Law, just all of the all of the craziness that happened with Golden State from someone who experienced it from the inside. Like what, what was, has your experience been like as like a really hardcore Golden State Warriors fan for the last 15 years? It's, it's crazy. I would say that like people don't give Warriors fans enough credit. They get such a hard time because of the way things are right now, but it was so rough for so long. Ever since I was a kid, the, the teams were just horrible. Like really, really bad. We didn't make the playoffs for more than a decade. Like that's how bad we were. And we went through all of that and our attendance was still high. Like people were going crazy at games. Like they didn't know any better. They just thought that was basketball. So when we started winning, um, it's like we experienced something that we didn't even know we were supposed to have. It's like, oh my goodness, like what do we even do with this? We're winning now. Like we're the team that's supposed to win the championship every year. Uh, but it was pretty unreal. I, one of the craziest things I saw is uh, like to to show you the loyalty that the, the Warriors have to their players and, and their guys, even if they aren't great, was the, the Monte Ellis-Bogut trade. Um, yeah. Just like of getting booed on the court during the Chris – I think it was a Chris Mullen-like uh, ceremony. Yeah, it was the retirement ceremony for Mullins, yeah. Yeah, I was at that game, actually, and – I was just like embarrassed to be there because everyone's like booing him. And I, like, I was one of the few people that was a, a fan of the Bogut trade. Like, yes, let's finally do something. If we, we keep Monte Ellis, like we're just going to keep going the same direction, not ever improve, but Bogut's a total change and shift. And uh, yeah, it, it's just, it's crazy to look back at that and that being kind of the turning point for the franchise. And um, I, I think that the, the fan base has is, is shifted since then. And, uh, of course, the, the expectations are totally different now. And it's good and bad. There's a lot more corporate people at the games and stuff. But you still see the same loyal, uh, rabid fans out there cheering the team on. Does it, feel, does it feel gross to know that, like, the Warriors are corporate America's basketball team? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Yeah, when, when you've been in there with, uh, with the guys that, you know, couldn't aff- can't afford tickets now, basically, like, Right. Yeah. Everyone's been priced out and it'll be even worse when they move, when they move from the Oracle, it'll be Silicon Valley bros only. Totally. Totally. Like you got the, the people who got priced out that can only afford to go to, to one game now when they had season tickets before. So it's like, they're still there, just not as often. It's a little frustrating, but that's, that's just uh, what happens, you know? Do you still like Steph Curry more than Kevin Durant? Are, are, is, it, is it true that Warriors fans are just like Durant? is like, whatever, he's just the mercenary. He's just there to get buckets, but there's no love there? When Durant first signed, like, that was kind of conflict between my dad and I. Like, he was the Steph Curry loyal guy, and I was like, no, nah, Durant's clearly better. Like, we just, you know, he's 
Because there's yeah. basically Warriors fans had to decide which player is better. You know, who's the yeah. MVP? Who's the guy? And I've changed back to to Steph Curry now. Like to me, Steph Curry is just a, a obviously a generational player, a guy that we we just might never see again. Is is totally changed the game. And uh, you hear a lot about people talking about the gravity uh, of Steph Curry and how he just changes the defense. It's so true. Like the Warriors are just so much better, and Steph Curry is so much more valuable than Kevin Durant. I was wrong in the beginning thinking that Kevin Durant was the guy that you should have if you had to pick one. I mean, Durant has like kind of stagnated as a Warriors player. He's still kind of the same guy he was when he left Oklahoma City. He hasn't really added much of anything. Actually, I would maybe even say his MVP season for the Thunder, he was actually better then than he is now in this iteration of the Warriors. Yeah, I mean, of, of course, uh, I think that you could argue that. And like, I don't want to say that Kevin Durant is bad or anything. Like, Kevin Durant sure. is still top five player, top. 10 player but compared to Steph I just think that it, it, I would clearly choose Steph over him now yeah so everyone who comes on to the show who's involved in DFS you got to tell the story uh how did you learn about DFS you know you kind of have a a poker background I assume that you use a lot of those skills especially probably when it comes to game selection and game theory probably even in a way that some pro DFS players who don't have that poker graph poker background have not been able to uh to you know access so uh you got to tell me the story how did you find out about dfs what was the first site you rigged for yeah i mean some of these other guys have better poker backgrounds than me i, I wasn't a poker pro or anything i did it maybe semi-professionally in college uh, where i didn't need much money um sure i wasn't making six figures a year playing poker or anything but um the way i got started in dfs i was tweeting about fantasy football for some season-long leagues i was running a commissioner service for um dynasty fantasy football leagues so I, like we're in the the dfb invitational leagues just like that pretty much yeah yeah i was commissioning 60 to 100 leagues a year and just kind of trying to get more interest in people joining the leagues and uh, a guy who was starting a dfs site saw my tweets and said, Hey, we're going to do some content for a new DFS site that we're going to launch. Would you mind coming down to, to San Francisco? I live in the Bay area, come down to San Francisco and, and film a session with us. Would you be interested in that? So I said, yeah. And I said, what's DFS though? You know, <laughs> like I, I didn't yeah, know sure. what it was. Yeah. So they uh, kind of told me what it was. And once I found out about it, I was just hooked. I was like, this is the coolest thing. Like you get to do it every day are you serious and then i got super into trying to figure out okay how do we solve this puzzle basically did you start out playing cash games like everyone else or kind of right away did you know like no i'm i'm trying to win i guess whatever whenever you know it would have been a hundred thousand dollars then was that was that the first goal or were you like i'm gonna grind this three dollar DraftKings nba head-to-head lobby harder than anybody I, I know in the beginning I did a mix of things, but when I did like posted head to heads, I got scooped by Condia, like in all of them. It was oh sure, every everybody had that experience, right? Everyone was like, "Yo, I, I posted all these games on FanDuel and I got scooped by someone named Condia." Like all my buddies who started playing DFS after I started doing it, literally every single one of them had that same experience. Exactly. And it's like, you don't, now I get it looking back, like what I should have done differently, all that kind of stuff. But at the time I'm going, what, how am I playing the same guy in every single contest? Like that doesn't make sense to me. And then of course he was super good back when I was brand new. Like I had no idea what I was doing compared to him. Like he was probably an 80% favorite in my contest. And, um, 
Yeah. So I was like, now cash games are pretty lame. And I had some success in tournaments because I think naturally when you're just starting off, you are contrarian just because you don't necessarily know who the chalky plays should be, who the best plays are in some sports. And uh, that can play to your benefit as well. If you have some sort of clue what you're doing, which I knew about sports and uh, I just hadn't really thought about the math angle of everything yet um, on the, in the very, very beginning of the first few months or so. So uh, gravitated towards tournaments with early success and, and really started to think about the strategies a little bit more and figured, oh, oh wait a minute, I can, I can do some damage here. I remember even back when I first started playing, I wouldn't use like the same lineup for everything. Like in, like in 2012 on FanDuel, like I would be entering in cash games, but like each time I would go to enter a game, I would be building like a new individual team, which mm-hmm. is like uh, clearly like not the right way to go about things. But even then, like you could still win doing that because as long as you like weren't playing Condia or, or Max, I guess, like you, you like could have won back then doing that. Yeah, the, the guy that introduced me to DFS names Daniel Schaefer. Um, he actually had somewhat of a clue. He'd been doing it for a while, so he gave me some pointers like that. Like, you know, this is how you build a 50-50 lineup. This is what works a little bit better, that sort of thing. So having some guidance early on certainly helped. And um, I was able to avoid some of the pitfalls. But, man, uh, playing I don't know how people decided I right, let's play cash games. If you run into that same Condia experience that I did. Yeah. I do. That's actually like a good point. Like it is kind of crazy that DFS has been as successful as it is. You know, I mean, it's a multi-billion dollar industry, even if there's been hiccups considering that so many people's first user experience was like bad. Like the, mm-hmm. the user experience was like you lose and you, it's like not even close. You like lose by a lot. You're like drawing dead. It, it's like sort of, it's like kind of like a little miraculous that the industry exists the way it does knowing that. Yeah. I mean, I messed up in that I liked that that was the case because that meant, well, if someone can do that, then I can do that. And I can do it. Yeah. Right. But it's like, I just want there to be as much skill as possible involved so that I can figure out how to get that skill and and that I can be the next guy. And that's kind of my approach, but I could totally see how another person would look at it and be like, Oh, I don't want to do this, you know, but the better players should win. Yeah, of course they should. Uh, do you remember the first tournament score? Like, do you remember like the the roster or anything like that? I don't re- really remember much of it. I remember uh, going super wide receiver heavy though in the beginning for NFL. Like that was just the thing. I was like, why would anyone pay for running backs? Like, just go right. super wide receiver heavy. Give me Calvin Johnson and and these other really good receivers. So I know that that was a part of it. I remember my first one was on, like, I, I don't remember the roster, but I remember the first tournament I won. I, I played NBA, and this was back when, like, the sites other than DraftKings, like, didn't have lights. Like, it was on Draft Street. And I remember I, I set my lineups and went to the Lego movie with my girlfriend at the time. And I, like, didn't check my phone. And then I walk out, and I was, like, winning, like, all these contests on Draft Street. And, like, it'll just be a memory that'll never leave me because you, I, I don't know. You can't forget the first one. I, I yeah. guess, I guess when you win a million dollars a couple times, it's easier <laughs> to forget the first one, Jeff. It's probably a little bit easier for you to forget the first one than it is for me. The, I remember my first qualifier win because it was, it was super weird because it was just too good to be true for me where I was like, I got paranoid. I was like, Oh man, I'm like going to die in a car crash or something. There's no way I'm going to actually go to play a fantasy football tournament at the playboy mansion. Like, I was just, I, I don't know. I was panicked. I thought it was too good to be true. There's no way I'm going to make it. The plane's going to crash before I get yeah. there. Like, I just, I, I don't know. I, I thought there's no way, no way it was actually going to happen. 
Do you remember how you did in the first final at the Playboy Mansion? Yeah, it was one of the Anthony Davis finals where he got hurt and like half the field oh, sure. was dead. Yeah, yeah. so that, that happened the first like two or three times. One of the times he came back, um, he, he left the game, uh, I want to say in the second quarter and then came back in the fourth quarter and ended up like paying off value basically still. So uh, everyone thought they were dead in this live final and kind of off drinking everything. And then someone goes, hey, Anthony Davis is back. They're like, what? Are you kidding me? And everyone shoots up the leaderboard. I finished fifth in that one, I think. First time, first time in Anthony Davis's career that he decided to come back in a game. Really though, yeah, he's great. <laughs> that that guy's so, an interesting story. That guy, literally, I I think I read something about how his mom like clips his toenails. Like he's just he's like a total mama's boy. Like he's just like a know. big fan. He's a big family guy. Like I think he has a twin sister, and I believe that his parents live with him in New Orleans. I believe like, it. Yeah, totally. That's very it. that's very bizarre for a professional athlete. It That's is. Not normal. It's, it's not a bad thing. It, it's cool. Um, I, I I know like Giannis. A lot of the guys out there have super strong like family values and stuff. Like Giannis, I think sends most of his paychecks back to family and stuff. Like I don't know. I I, I like guys like that. But with Anthony Davis, it just seems like a, a bit of a mama's boy. Like not not a super tough guy. Yeah, definitely. So this is actually a good natural transition because I wanted to talk about live finals because you've obviously had a ton of, you know, amazing success at them. But really, most people like kind of like talk bad about live finals, right? Like the, the qualifiers are, are mega raked. Uh, the event itself is raked. And, you know, a big part of the prize pool that they're advertising is actually the cost of the trip associated with the live finals but you've still been an advocate for them. So the first is, do you simply place like a high value on the trip? Is like, is that a big part of like why you are still so into live finals is because like, a, it's a paid vacation. Like, don't, like, don't get me wrong. The live finals are a great experience. Like it's a vacation you would pay to go on anyway. Yeah. It's the, the values they put on it are so ridiculous though. It's like this trip value is worth $8,000. And then you go to look to book an extra room for a friend at the hotel you're like wait a minute it costs $1,200 what are you spending you know the, the rest of the money on so so that's frustrating that part of it's frustrating the vacation part in general like having value contributed towards that I'm totally fine with especially in the beginning I was because I used it as an excuse to travel essentially when most of my life I didn't travel but I think that a lot of the value is lost to people in uh, overlaying the qualifiers, which happens every single year in every uh, sport, pretty much. And um, also people, I, and this isn't available to everyone, but you can charge, you can charge to, to sell pieces of your action too. So like you can, it's the, the finals rake free. There's no rake in the final. Uh, what your ticket value is, 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 is what the payouts are. So you can sell at markup and make some money back that way. And it still is not like probably the most valuable thing out there in, in terms of um, expected profitability for a professional or something. But for me, when you combine that with the fact that you get the, the ability to show that you're the best, you know, the, the bragging rights, the, the being able to unleash your competitiveness, I think that's the best way to do it. Like to me, I don't know a better way to show that, hey, I'm the best. Like, what, what am I going to do? Grind out cash games and like show my 1099 at the end of the year? Like that, that to me, how else am I going to show the, that I'm the best sure. at DFS? So a big part of the value of the live final is like, it, I guess it would be marketing 
part, like def, I mean, definitely a big part of the, the live final value is in marketing, especially if you bank. And then, you know, also in the ability to go head to head, do you think that the finals are like soft? Do you think that people put out bad lineups in the finals? I think people put out bad lineups in the qualifiers and the people that actually make the live finals often can become, can be strong fields. Like yeah. anytime you give like Yuta, like, five entries into a, a hunter man final or something Uticao. I mean, that's, that's not like you got a big edge in something like that. I think he's one of the best tournament players out there, but um, yeah, you're, you're going to see some dead money out there though. I've seen dead money win life finals too. Like I've seen people pick their favorite players. I've seen people live, leave. Um, I saw a lady one time, I think leave 1600 of cap space in a live final and, and still win. Like, so you see stuff like that. Sure, uh, yeah. Overall, yeah, I would say the edge when you, you factor in qualifiers mostly and then the live finals in itself, um, it's, it's there. Like people think you can't be profitable playing these live finals. You definitely can. What's, uh, what's been your experience with selling action at the live finals? Like what's like the most you've sold? Like has there ever been a spot where you've had like 20% of yourself and then binked and then hated yourself for selling the action? Yeah, so I've sold a good amount of action this past year at live finals, but I prefer to sell action in the qualifying process rather than at the final, unless yeah. you are selling for markup, like I said. Uh, but yeah, I, I pretty public knowledge. Bryce has invested money in me before a third inch long. Like he's had um, up to 50% of my live final um wins before but I'll so you're like his, you're his best buddy right like oh, you, you're the you're the you're the horse of all time you're the champion horse there, there's no better feeling than sending someone like hundreds of thousands of dollars you know and a 1099 sure. at the end of the year when they back you you know so um yeah but bryce has always been a good friend and, and good supporter and uh there's no better feeling than being able to reward someone like in that way you know but um yeah, I'll never have less than 50% of myself. You know, that's about the most I'll give up. Do you plan to, like, still be chasing them pretty hard throughout baseball season? Like, uh, I guess I guess probably it's a little bit more affordable for you now to, to play in the, the 5K Mega Qs? Yeah, so especially with DraftKings, one, I've got, like, a bunch of really silly but competitive goals. Um and one of them is to go back to back in the DraftKings MLB live final. Like I won the DraftKings MLB final last year and it would be awesome to go back to back. No one's ever done that. And it would just be something that uh, I could look back on and be like, wow, that was super cool. So I will go pretty hard after these MLB ones and then we'll, we'll readdress after football. Basketball has gone uh, pretty well, but uh it went really well on FanDuel and, and not good on DraftKings. So we'll kind of just reassess things season to season and, and see how, how they're going. But for now, they're, they're very profitable. Yeah. So we got to talk about uh, your work in the industry now. You did get your start with Roto Grinders and left there to work with Guru Elite. Uh, so now you don't work for Guru Elite anymore. The, the first thing I have to ask is, what did that experience teach you about, you know, your own brand and business and entrepreneurship? Yeah, so certainly the, the really good thing about Guru Elite, what they do really well is they create super loyal subscribers, essentially. And 
learning how to do that is, is I think created some value. Um, you know, and so, like, I think anywhere you go, you learn what to do and what not to do it. And I think a lot of the what to do's are from Guru Lee are in, in the marketing section. So, um, so I think Tommy is basically one of the best guys at creating interest in nothing. Like it really, like he could sell anything to anyone. I always say Tommy would be the best guy to go and play a game like survivor or something. Cause he would just have everyone convinced that, um, you know, everything's under control and, and that they're number one. And, um, I think he, he would just walk, run away with that, a survivor championship. <laughs> any, survivor. Uh, Tom, Tommy would be amazing on any reality TV show scenario. Like you put that dude on top chef or master chef, like what, it just doesn't matter. Like that dude was born to be on reality television. It's kind of a missed opportunity for him that he hasn't had a chance to be on reality TV since shipmates. Seriously. Like there's, we, we've got to get him out there. Like, I don't know if he would do it, but like him on survivor, I would, I would pay to watch that. You know, like I would pay good money to watch that. What do you think some of the biggest strengths while you were at Guru Elite were? And then what are some of the things that, uh, that you disagreed with that sort of made your decision to leave the company a little easier? Well, I, I think the, they get the most, um, like people get upset the most about the, all the screenshots. And I get that. I'm kind of torn with the whole screenshot thing because I think it's, it's good and bad. It's good in the sense that you're seeing and able to show people that a group, someone in your group that is getting the same advice and using the, hopefully the same process as you and, every, and everything is seeing positive results, even if you're not, because that's encouraging that you could be the next one, right? Like if you're, doing, if you're all doing everything the same, it's in cycles. You can't all win each day there's only so many tournaments um so i think that's positive and encouraging because you can get super low on losing streaks and think man like what i'm not doing anything right i'm never gonna win and um encouragement is good in, in that way but then it's negative in the sense that i think it creates these super high expectations for subscribers where they're seeing all these screenshots of people winning and they think oh all i have to do is sign up to this site whatever site it is, doesn't have to be Guru Elite. And um, I'm going to win money. All I have to do is plug in the guys they say from the articles and boom, that's it. That's all there is to DFS. Like to me, like, that's not <laughs> all there is. You've still got to learn a lot and your expectations shouldn't be that you're going to hit these $10,000, $100,000, million dollar screenshots that people are posting out there. I, I try to make sure people's expectations are realistic for the contests that they're entering and they understand the probability of them actually winning those contests. Yeah. I mean, I think that's uh, that's in general is sort of like the plague of the DFS industry, like the, the screenshots and the, the lineup sellers selling the dream that you can win every night or that you can win, you know, that you can win at an 80% clip in sports betting or whatever. And I do, I think it's just like, uh, that's just something it's just like very like 1970s Las Vegas toutish, right? Just because like the best sports gamblers in the world win like 57% of the time, like these massive syndicates, you know, like it just, I do, I do agree with you that, I mean, I can't ever get mad at someone for posting a screenshot. Like if I won a hundred thousand dollars, I'm like, I'm posting that screenshot and I'm not going to apologize for it. So it is like, it's, it's kind of hard to say, like, you don't want to bash on someone for being proud of themselves for mashing, but you do understand how like it does create this unrealistic perception for the customers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like, 
people don't know what you're trying to accomplish when you post the screenshot. Like, what's your intention? Like, a lot of guys are just super proud that they won and they want to be acknowledged by the guys that are giving them advice that they look up to, right? Like, so they tag Tommy, they tag me, or they tag whoever else, you know, Pete Jennings, and say, look at all this money I won. Thank you so much for your advice. Like, they just want you to retweet them and give them a little acknowledgement. So what are you supposed to do? Not do that? Uh, I mean, I don't know. It's like, I'm pretty torn on the subject, but um, I do think that the positives aren't talked about enough. Everyone just wants to kind of dump on the fact that people um, use the screenshots for marketing and they think it's just all uh, bad intention. When in reality, I've I've never used a screenshot for bad intentions. Uh, It's the last thing I want to do. No, and I don't, I don't really think that anyone who does it ever does it with the sense of like, oh, I'm re- well, I mean, the lineup sellers, the lineup yeah. sellers are just trying to, you know, they're just trying to hoodwink you. But I don't think like when a corporate DFS account retweets a customer who had a good night, I don't think that they're trying to like lie to people. I think, and I think it's cool for people to see that like the tools do work. And mm-hmm. like, I know from being in like the daily Roto Slack, like there are people who really understand how to use the tools and are able to be winning DFS players and they understand it. And some people aren't able to just cause they just don't quite have it. Or maybe they just haven't quite gotten there yet, but I do. It's like a cool aspirational thing for a lot of people. Exactly. And think about it too. I mean, everyone is expecting that they're going to make money for joining a content site. Only 18% of people are going to win in these tournaments that people are joining. So if everyone was a subscriber to any one site, like still most people are going to be losing. So yeah, um, like people don't look at it in realistic ways and think, well, yeah, like I, my chances are going to increase by getting positive content from someone, but there's certainly not guaranteed or anywhere near guaranteed. No. Uh, so the final question about Guru Elite is, of course, how close is the Twitter version of Tommy G to the real version of Tommy G? I have my own answer to this question also. <laughs> I've hung out with Tommy a pretty good amount, and I would say he's more censored on Twitter than in real life. Like, in real like, life. honest to God. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah, because like, in real life, like, he can, I think, get away with certain things or not be embarrassed about certain things and know that they're going to disappear the next day. Twitter, like that's there for good. You know, like sometimes you can post something on Twitter, wake up the next morning and go, Oh man, like someone screenshotted that. And that's, I'm going to really regret tweeting that. But in, in real life, he's just hanging out with people and like, just not afraid to do anything. I've seen him do a, a lot of crazy stuff. No, no. My experiences with him at live finals are, are very similar. I mean, it's the same thing. I asked the same question to draft cheat when he came on the show and he was like, yeah, absolutely. The dude is just like a full blown maniac, which yeah. is true. No. And right. honestly, like not even in a, a bad way with everything too. Like he's a super charming dude. He gets along with uh, a lot of people, makes friends with a lot of people. And he's like, he's fun to hang out with. Like, um, it's just that you can go, like me, I'm the total opposite of Tommy G. I'm way more laid back and conservative and everything. So, I, like, we we have good balance, I would say, when we hang out. But um, <laughs> he's he's fun. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Um, all right. So the people they want they want process talk. So how much actual number crunching are you yourself doing in terms of building projections? And what is this like sort of math that you are using to build off of just your straight player projections? Yeah, it's different for every sport. I would say that the the most number crunching I do is in baseball, where I even do stuff like create my own stats and um, by combining certain stats that I value and then weighting them, 
um, kind of like you would a, a model or something, right? And be coming out with some sort of rating system. Like, so I, I go that far with MLB, with football, it's a lot less about projecting um, numbers like that, unique things like that, more about relying on analysis from people that know what they're talking about in football in general and just figuring out, okay, where's the ownership and how can I find the edge on this particular slate? Because in football, so much can happen on, on any given week that uh, I don't think the projections are necessarily as important as they would be for something like NBA or MLB. Yeah, like in NBA, actually having access to like very good to the decimal point projections, super important, will give you a huge edge, even in tournaments where game theory is playing a big part of it. In NFL, I would say it matters. In baseball, I would say it matters even less. Like especially having like a like a to the to the number projection. I think like ranking players in baseball, like having a, like a rating system would be most important or or finding a way to like rate stacks with ownership, like creating like leverage scores. Yeah, I started with baseball, not even worrying about projecting actual fan duel points in my projections. It was just strictly a rating system, like how to just show me how much more I value this guy over the next guy. And that's uh, largely what I've used. Uh, I've started to incorporate fantasy points more, but you're right in, in baseball though, you can find just huge swings on players where you'll value a pitcher that nobody is even talking about a ton as one of your top three arms in talent. Like and Dylan Covey. <laughs> like a Dylan Covey, exactly. And all of a sudden you've got a 3% or a 0.3% on Dylan Covey who at 4K gets you 20 fantasy points, 20 DK points. And then all of a sudden that's, that's huge for you because you just load up on your bats and your SP one and um, the, the, the swings and the projections can be huge in that sense. Yeah. And I think probably that's like the, the biggest thing for people to understand though, is like the swings, right? Like, uh, like the understanding, I feel like even though the, the talk about DFS has gotten so scientific, people still don't understand that in a probabilistic system where you're estimating the probabilities of everything, there's still just like a very good probability that you're wrong about literally everything, like that every spot in your roster is bad. Totally. And people don't give, I know everyone talks about ceiling projections and four projections, but very few people actually practice that approach in lineup building. Like, I, I don't know. Like to me, that's the weirdest thing in DFS right now is that everyone knows that there are ceilings and floors and I guess floors in cash games, people actually that's actionable for them, but nobody really, not many people really use ceilings when they're building their, their DFS lineups in my experience, unless I just got totally different ceilings for guys than other people and, and different probabilities of those ceilings happening. But yeah, think about really what are the true ceilings of these guys for GPPs and the probability of that happening. That's the most important thing. Yeah, like like um, like range of outcome projections and like 90th percentile projections are like some of like the most useful things. But I, I would imagine that even people with access to those, like even on like the daily roto tools, I still bet most people are probably building their tournament lineups using the 50th percentile outcomes. Because yeah. like when you when you see 90th percentile stuff, like for NBA, for example, you're getting guys who like just shoot a bunch of threes because their 90th percentile projection is going to be them hitting 70% of their shots one night, which like, 
yeah, some nights that'll leave you with nine DK points and other nights it'll leave you with 35. And I, I still feel that people are still oftentimes building with that like 50th percentile mindset. It's above 90% of people that use optimizers and stuff. I'm telling you like that. And it should be like 90% of people using ceilings rather. So it's in my opinion. So I think there's a huge edge in that. Yeah. Um, so the next, the next thing that we got to talk about is of course, ownership projections. I'm, I'm assuming that you have some special sauce for ownership projections. Uh, I use a site called UF collective, which I'll be selling on number ball as well. They're, they're going to be doing ownership projections for me, but they're legit. They're extremely good with their ownership projections for every sport. So I'm actually super proud of that. Cause that's, you know, one thing with my site too, it's I'm going to have stuff that I believe in and I, I use, I'm not going to be afraid to mention competitors. I, I've worked previous places where it's like, Oh, you can't talk about this site. There are competitions. Like, well, yeah, I, but I use their lineup page. Why can't I talk about that site? Like, what am I supposed to do? Tell the subscribers to use a different lineup page that I don't use. And like, the one not, that I use. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, that's basically how it's going to be. And with number, the, the projections, I use these guys for football. When I, I won a million dollars in the, the FanDuel Fan Championship, finished second in their FanDuel, uh, FanDuel Live Finals same day. And I was on these running backs that were 1% owned. And these guys are good. Like, they're, they're telling me who these, these low-owned players are going to be. So when I can rely on someone that's going to be better at something, uh, I just do it. Like, why, why even think about it? Why try, why try to waste time on something that you know someone is already way better at? Yeah, so basically you've sort of come to the conclusion that it makes more sense to outsource some of that work as opposed to doing like your own proprietary blend for projecting ownership. Exactly. Yeah. So how much are you leaning on ownership projections versus projected points? Like, I guess this is actually the special sauce question. If anyone knew the, the real answer to this question, they just print money every night, but sort of like, what is your process with weighing projected ownership versus projected points? Uh, I mean, I don't know there's, exactly. There's not a black and white answer to it. Yeah, like how you quantify that. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I don't have a percentage that I think one is more valuable than the other. But I think that um, ownership projections are more valuable than the consensus beliefs, probably. I know everyone is aware of ownership and aware that they should probably try to be contrarian in tournaments. But I don't know that enough thought is put into it. And like, being contrarian, like just using low owned guys. Like I think that's what a lot of people's approach is. And it, it's not really that simple. Like you've got to be thinking about again, what, what's the upside of these low owned guys. If I can get Derek Henry, like I did that uh, my best weekend for NFL this last year at, at 1% ownership when everyone else is on, I think it was Saquon that week or something. And they realistically, they have the same ceiling. Um, you know, I think Derek Henry had just come off that is, uh, NFL record breaking week, um, two weeks before. It's just like, yeah, like give me the guy who's almost unowned literally to, versus the guy who's 70 something percent owned is the probabilities are way in your favor at that point. Right. And he's cheaper. <laughs> so to go along with all of this ownership talk, I kind of saw you and Drewby talking the other day about PGA DFS. And as I was doing this agenda, I sort of thought like, the sport that goes along best with, with sort of thinking about ownership before anything and thinking in terms of like uh, 90th percentile outcomes is PGA DFS because people are so overconfident in projections that just can't be that accurate because golf is like a more variant game than anything else that people play 
in DFS really. So sort of what has prompted you to play PGA DFS and have you spent any time at all projecting players on your own? Or are you mostly just thinking about like ownership concepts? I mean, I'd actually say like this, I played PGA DFS less this year than, than most years. I've had some success with PGA DFS in the past. And I do think it is one of the best sports to be contrarian in if you believe that the the betting mark markets are accurate in pga like you have to believe that there's an edge in dfs because the ownership isn't perfectly spread out right like the salaries are based on pga odds and then you'll have one guy at 9100 that's 35 percent owned and another guy at 9100 that's three percent owned like there's an edge there if you believe that the betting markets are accurate so um yeah it's that is um certainly a sport that i have a ton of interest and in. I think it's a ton of fun it's just always secondary to me to whatever other sport is going on whether it be NBA or MLB um, and it's just sometimes I get there sometimes I don't sometimes sure. I run yeah. a dummy lineup like I did last week like I, I register all these contests and I had a dummy lineup in there so lost like uh, one to two thousand dollars on some random clicks couldn't be couldn't be worse than uh than what happened to uh than what happened to me last week was not very good what happened uh, so when you when you uh when you start a new sport like this, and probably this is more general advice maybe for for number ball customers, are you setting aside like a specific bankroll budget for it, or are you just sort of leaving it within inside your normal bankroll like disciplines? Say that again. I'm sorry. For- so like so, so you have your your NBA, your MLB, your NFL bankroll, and mm-hmm. and DraftKings posts like sick PGA contests one week, or mm-hmm. maybe they post for some reason like a huge esports GBP, and you're like, oh, I'm gonna play this. Are the is the money you're setting aside for that part of just like the normal DFS bankroll, or you, do you set aside like extra money for like a niche sport thing or for sports betting even? Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, it's. It's more of a, I think that here's some extra money to throw at it. I think I approach things uh, in general. Most of my action is in, or a lot of my action is in these these live finals and qualifiers, and I'll budget out a certain amount that I want to spend, and that's how heavy I'll attack GPPs. That's how I'll know how many entries to throw in. in I mean, uh, that's how many entries I'll know how to throw into these qualifiers and stuff. But yeah, with PGA, it's like, ah, I'll spend one to 2000 here and not take a super serious approach to it in terms of bankroll management and stuff it's just kind of fun money you know yeah what is the most jarring thing about becoming suddenly rich what has been like the one moment where you're like shit this is weird dude uh, i would say kind of just the the mental aspect of everything is is weird uh to get used to because i've never been scared of like i don't know if scared's the right word but concerned about like losing money and and my money being protected and stuff. And now I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. Like I've got to really worry about how much like FDI insurance my bank has. And like, Oh, where should I put this to make sure if this happens, then I still have some, like I've never even thought about those kind of things. And now I'm like worried about money. So I I have to force myself to get out of that mindset and stop worrying about money. Cause that like, that's not the mindset that I want to have. But um, that's kind of been just the the weird thing that I wasn't expecting to happen. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, worrying about money too much, I think. I mean, I feel like that's probably pretty natural, though. Like, the, yeah. the, more, the more money you have, the more it sort of, like, sort of probably consumes just your general, like, waking up, going through the day thought process. Because it's, like, more ingrained in your identity to, like, have money. 
yeah, I mean, I guess it's about, uh, you know, it's part of being an adult, I guess, and everything. But at the yeah. same time, it's just like, I don't want my life to be spent, uh, a, a, to spend a ton of time on it, just worrying about my money. Like the yeah. money is fine. It's going to be there, figure out all that kind of stuff. But it's like, don't worry about the money. The money's there. It's not going anywhere. You're fine. So, so on the Wiggins and Dink pod that we had a couple weeks ago, they, they talked a lot about losing, which sort of goes back to our screenshots conversation. You know, dealing with downswings is like a, a pretty important part of the game. I think like being able to remain clear headed and like making good decisions while losing in DFS is, I think, very difficult. Yeah, especially if you're going after super top-heavy things like qualifiers, which is why I said back, back to the staking thing, It's that's why there's a, a lot more value to me in having a hedge at that point. Because if you end up throwing $50,000 into a live final uh, qualifier uh, over the course of a season and don't end up hitting a seat, you've got that hedge. Um so it's it's tough when you're going after super top heavy things. There are ways to to hedge against that and and get more comfortable with it. Yeah, have you ever had a moment where you've been like, "This is like too much"? Like, have you ever had like a losing moment where you like pondered the activity of DFS? No, because again, it goes back to I can always point to someone that I know that is doing well, and I always think, well, if they're doing well, then I can obviously do well too, and you know, I'll just figure out how to get better or if I need to change anything or if it's just variance or whatever, but um, I kind of never take the, the, I, I always just think I'm going to find a way to get better. And um, to that point, uh, I, I think I have, if there's ever a point where my friends and uh, the people I respect in this industry telling me, Hey, they're not making money. That's when I'll bail. Yeah. Like, I guess if there was ever a point when like the, the rake is so high and the edge is so small that even like the best people can't make money, that would probably be the time to, uh, to head out. Exactly. No, totally. Like if, if you know, like three or four DFS pros, which I'm sure you do too, and they're all of a sudden struggling to, to turn profits, that's when you got to ask yourself, well, okay, then me not turning a profit, that's more real. If they're still making money, then you know, it's still out there. Then it's still possible. Right. Yeah. So we got to get we got to get to sports betting. This is like this is pretty much how we end all of the DFS shows cuz I do think that if if someone unlocked the right answer to this question, they could just lock themselves into millions. But where do you really see DFS and sports betting intersecting in the future? Like we have a new sponsor for this show, Thrive Fantasy, who has like a, a pretty interesting concept to me, which is basically daily fantasy contests. But instead of wagering in competing point totals for your players, you're like betting props basically as an overall contest. And I think that has some real validity. Uh, how serious of a better are you right now? Is that like is that like a big part of your daily, weekly activities with sports? Or is that more sort of just for fun? It's never a target for me, but it stuff naturally comes up when you're researching NBA and you'll, you'll maybe notice a trend and you're, you're thinking, oh, well, then this is, they're, they're going to dominate this matchup in this way and that's going to give them a huge edge and then I'll bet the game or bet the total or, or, or whatever. But it's never I'm going into the day, or it's rarely that I'm going into the day thinking, all right, let's look at what which spreads are off today or anything like that. I don't have any projections around that or anything at this moment. I think eventually I'll get into that, but um, right now I'm not doing it. I will say the, this DraftKings, that sports betting championship was one of the coolest concepts I've ever seen. 
uh, that was more exciting to me than DFS. Just the yeah, I mean, there's like 19 layers of game theory that went into that contest. Exactly, and it's not solved yet. And like, uh, I wasn't happy with my approach. I, I took like a bunch of player props and like long shots and like tried to bank that way. But um, I like I, I can't wait to do it again if they offer it again or if a site offers that again because there, like you said, there's just so many levels of strategy. It's a it's a puzzle that nobody's solved yet. How would you approach it if you if they if they ran it back for like the March Madness like weekend like like uh, Friday Saturday Sunday of March Madness and we have NBA games and golf going How would you run it back? So the most of the sharp people um, at the time I disagree with it, but now I I like the approach is what they did is they basically kept trying to to double their money so that the, like the first thing they they did was they bet everything on one one spread or total. And then once they won that, they would bet everything on the next spread or total. So I would take a, an approach similar to that. Um, after thinking about it, I, I do think that that was the right way to go rather than me trying to hit like these long shot parlays and stuff. I feel like I wasted an opportunity, but it's, it's, I think the core right there of what those, those people were doing is, is, is the key and, and tweaking it a little bit. I've got some ideas on how to do that, but I don't, I don't think I'm going to share those right now. I mean, you gotta, you gotta have something behind the paywall. You gotta have something, you gotta have, you gotta leave something for the people to be, to be paying for number ball to come and get, they got to learn how to sports bet. Yeah, man. Yeah. There's, there's, there's no doubt that I will have something for the people if they release that contest again, just because I think that, I mean, I'm confident that I'm on one of the better puzzle solvers out there when it comes to these sort of things. And, and I do think I would have an edge, even though I blew it the first time. Do you see like the, legalized sports betting market becoming bigger for either you know just the people who are already in the dfs industry or yourself because i think my argument has always been it's just it's just easier if sports betting is fully legal the same way DraftKings is fully legal in most places to download the app and bet on one spread than it is to research for an hour and set an nba lineup like it's just easier for people so my assumption has kind of been that eventually sports betting will be more popular than dfs but you might have a conflicting opinion. I mean, I just think they're going to be like synonymous. Like they're going to be the same. Yeah. Thing. It's people are going to say, did you, did you bet on sports tonight? And they could be talking about DFS or they could be talking about player props. So yeah, it's just the same thing. So I don't think there'll be anything to, to compare eventually uh, five years, 10 years down the line. It would just be like, what do you mean? Is, is, is player prop betting bigger than spread betting? Like, no, I guess not. But like, it's the same thing. Why are you asking what's, what the difference is? You know, I think it'll be like that. Right. I hope that, I hope that player prop betting doesn't ever get so big that the lines become good. Because yeah. let me tell you, let me tell you, if Davis Maddock can be profitable at betting player props, it probably means the lines are real bad. <laughs> you do see some pretty, pretty bad player props out there and it is funny because a lot of people even uh, some of the sharp professional dfs players out there rely on player props a lot so it's interesting but um I i'm with you i think that a lot of them are pretty weak it's just it's frustrating that they're capped out on such low dollar amounts i mean yeah if you uh if you're playing on if you're playing on an offshore book and you bet like a hundred dollars on the over on andre drummond rebounds and he hits it you're not allowed to bet player props there anymore that's it it's exactly. done for you even like my bookie, it's like $25 to bet is the max that you can bet on some of these season long props. It's like, what? For a whole season, the most I can bet on this guy's home run total is $25. Like, I don't know, it's not even worth it, right? 
they had they had some crazy odds for MLB. They had like Joey Gallo at like twenty eight to one for to lead the league in home runs. But yeah, you just couldn't get anything down on it, so it was like barely worth it to even like get the money in. Yeah, I, I um I love Gallo. I I love that bet twenty eight to one. I took Trout at twenty to one though. It's like like to me that that's ridiculous. So sure, I think yeah. that they're they're like four or five guys up there. If you can get twenty to one on some of them uh, or better like Gallo. And I think Bellinger is another super sneaky guy. I think could have a ton of home runs this year too. Maybe not lead the league, but yeah, I love those kind of bets. You want to, you want to leave the people with uh, some MLB nuggets? Like what are your, what are your bold proclamations for MLB in 2019? I sprung this on you. This wasn't on our agenda, but uh, if you have some hot takes to get off on the 2019 MLB season, this is the time. I mean, I'm I'm going to be – you mentioned Gallo. I think Gallo is going to be a guy I'm super high on. Bellinger is going to be a guy I'm super high on. Uh, pitchers, I've always been a Nick Pavetta guy. I'll be high on him again. I think that uh, Bieber, uh, Shane Bieber, is going to be really good this year as well. Um, I don't know. I, I get set on a podcast yesterday. Like, a lot of what I've done for MLB so far is just, like, data dumping and, like, reorganizing formulas and – and that kind of stuff. I haven't even dug into specific players and um, how much I, I think I'm going to like them this year too much. All right. Uh, tell people about the site, where they can find you, where they can, uh, where they can sign up. Sure. So number ball, we are going to offer a special promotion for the first 200 people to sign up. It's going to be $188 for the season. We're not going to offer monthly subscriptions because we want people committed to the process and, we're going to commit to that on our end by offering weekly strategy and, and teaching articles along with monthly strategy sessions and um, workshops and those sort of things, along with daily slate analysis, like my, my rundown that I've done for years across different sites. I'll have something similar to that, and I'll have a, either a podcast or live stream pretty much every day as well. So I'll be working weekends too. You'll You'll get content from me on, on Saturdays or Sundays, sometimes maybe both um, might have someone helping me might not. We're still working out the details on that. But um, like I, like I kind of touched on at the beginning and throughout this pod, I, I'm not here saying sign up for my site and I guarantee I'm going to make you a million dollars. It's nothing like that at all, but I, I am committed to making everyone that subscribes to my site a better DFS player and I'll do everything I can to make that happen. Beautiful, man. Thank you so much for uh, joining the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on, dude. Big fan. And you mentioned the, the Dink pod the other day, too, with Wiggins. Like, if people haven't listened to that one, I love that one a lot. That was a really good episode. Yeah, they should go back to uh, listening to how Andrew Wiggins was down about half a million dollars and then binked two of the lowest probability wins of his entire DFS career to get back to even. That was, uh, that's good radio. I mean, there's nothing. Seriously, like, some of the stuff in there is just interesting and that people probably have never heard um professionals talk about before and i thought that you i think in general you do a good job of getting stuff out there that people haven't talked about before and and that's what that's what the listeners want right they don't want to hear the same thing regurgitated over and over you're getting new information although i'm pretty sure dink has been on uh, right by now about 15 podcasts telling his uh, his life story and his story in dfs i've heard i've heard how dink worked in finance and then some guy emailed him about who is the best starting pitcher that day and that's how dink found out about dfs i've heard that story about 19 times <laughs> <laughs> dink's a good dude man i really respect oh he's the best for the charity work and everything too like um that's something i'd love to to get going soon after i can nail everything down with number balls 
we need more charity work out there in the DFS industry. I think it'd be awesome to correlate those two things together. Yeah, instead of giving away your weekly entry fees, trying to win Drive the Green, just go ahead and give those uh, $75 to a charity instead. There you go.